Growing up, I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, sports were my favorite thing. In high school, I started playing uh, varsity sports and started hanging out with the older kids at a young age. That's where I started to experiment with alcohol, uh, drugs, pills, all of that. When I was 18 years old, I took a fly ball off the top of my head during baseball practice, and it gave me a lot of headaches. Uh, that made me seek out pills and things from my friends. And then I started uh, looking, checking in my mom's medicine cabinet, friends' mom's medicine cabinets and um, I was just stealing her pills or anybody's pills every day. Um, I had a really, really deep addiction to painkillers um, by the time I was 18 years old. I hid that from my parents for a while. I was really ashamed of it. Um, I was stealing from them. I was stealing from my friends, doing just god awful things to people that I loved. And I finally came clean. Um, when I was 19 years old to my parents, really about how bad this addiction was. They sent me to a 30-day program. It didn't really help me. Um, and you know, I went right back to it. And then I tried a 45-day program and then ended up going right back to it. And then even after a suicide attempt and a couple other things, I tried a 90-day treatment program inpatient and it did not help me. It got so bad to the point where I eventually ended living up at a halfway house. I was in there with people who had just gotten out of prison and uh, it wasn't a good influence on me as a 19-year-old kid. Um, so they showed me how to get heroin and how easy it was to get where I lived. So uh, what, one night we were doing heroin and I shot up and I had passed out and uh, pretty much died right there on the spot. Um, the guys I was with, they threw my body into the lawn of a hospital and a couple nurses that were a couple minutes late for work, they actually found me laying on the side of the road, all purple. My face was purple and had 37% oxygen in my body. Even at that point too, that wasn't a wake up call for me. So I'd gotten in trouble with the law. I had done some time in jail and um, just things weren't going well for me. Um, tried to move back in with my parents. It only lasted about three days or so. It was really hard on them. I had kind of flushed their funds of money. My dad had talked to a co-worker and she told him about a Christian program back in Indiana that uh, her niece went to and said it helped her. I'd never gone to church, never really read the Bible, really never did anything, but uh, my father made an ultimatum. He said, you know what, you can either go learn about the Bible for a year, or you can probably end up in prison or dead within a year. So what do you choose? And I chose the Christian program. So through that, um, I gained a lot of values. Uh, started reading the Bible and just kind of trying to understand it and um, met a lot of good people and uh, really just pulled me from that deepest, deepest part where I was and kind of just showed me value, um, that there's value in me as a person and in my life and that there's meaning. Cause there for a while, um, I really, I just, I did not think that I was ever gonna get better. Really going through this program and going through what I did and going through everything in my life really was for a reason. I met my wife through it. Because of all this, everything I've been through, I really do have a passion 
for people in addiction, people struggling, people just at their lowest lows, just looking for hope or just anything out there. And that's kind of why I was wanting to start a recovery group um, here at church, here at Crossroads, just as a place, a community, a safe place that we can just talk about our struggles and just so people know, you know, you're not alone. There's other people out there and there is hope and there is a bright future out there for you. Yeah. What a uh, good story. Great story. Good to hear that. Uh, it's a powerful story. Uh, this whole series, it's been really wonderful to get to hear lots and lots of people's stories. Uh, before we jump in, let's talk about the elephant in the room, these beautiful eyeglasses. <laughs> like, what is wrong with him? So I'm 45 years old, never had eyewear to speak of, and uh, the, I was having to hold things out a little further. So I finally went to the eye doctor. I hadn't been in like 20 years to an eye doctor, and uh, they said, use it. So, of course, I choose the ugliest pair of glasses I can possibly find because I'm going to leave them somewhere, and I want people to go, oh, those are Ryan's. <laughs> so I figure that'll save me a little money in the long run, so there you go. But uh, I, love, I love to hear stories. I love Sai's story. You know, Sai's story is a story of pain. It's a story of disappointment. It's a story of a disease. It's a story of disillusionment, like coming to this space of, like, this isn't, what I want my life to be, the illusion of what I think is going to happen, you know, that choice of what do you want to do. And ultimately is a story about willingness. Like what was Sai willing to do to move forward in life? Was he willing to change? Was he willing to try again? And even a story of willingness to say what will he do with that part of his life, his journey to redeem it and this willingness to participate in other people's recovery journey. You know, all of us in life, we have these moments of disillusionment. And in those moments, we're faced with a challenge to our willingness. I don't know if you've ever, like, gone through a moment of disillusionment, and by that I mean you, you have an illusion of what your life or a relationship or a marriage or a friendship or your bank account or a hobby, what it's going to be, right? It's the idea of something, that is way more difficult than the reality of it, right? I'm being disillusioned right now with how difficult it is to put a pergola on a house. As I look at these everywhere, I'm like, come on, it's just some wood painted, a few cuts. <laughs> Meanwhile, I spent all of yesterday staining wood in my driveway, lugging these 12-foot beams. I felt like I was in like some strong, losing some like lumberjack competition, dragging these things around, right? So I have, there's an illusion of what it's going to be like, and in the moment of disillusionment, right? I, I remember growing up, and we would go to a restaurant that um, we had, I don't know that you all have them here, but where I grew up, and then on the East Coast, you had these restaurants called Friendlies. Yeah, see, right? Like, let me tell you something about Friendlies, right? Friendlies is the, the quintessential experience of disillusionment, right? Because... <laughs> Growing up, as a kid, you go to this restaurant, and it was like ice cream sundae at the end of it, and you just remember this as the best place ever. And then as an adult, you go eat there, and you're like, what is this disgusting food that I'm eating? Sorry, friendlies. 
But it's like there's the illusion because the memory creates it, right? So that's, disillusionment is just like the idea of what something is, the experience of it, and then you go, okay, now there's a gap in a sense. And it challenges our willingness. And you think about like a friendship, right? You're invested into a friendship, and there's this idea that this person is there for me. And then something happens, and there's tension in that friendship, right? The illusion starts to fade, and we're faced with a question, like how willing am I to continue to invest in it? Maybe you have a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, you're in a marriage, a partnership, and things get a little tough, and the illusion of what a committed relationship is, a, a sharing in an address is, right? What that means. So now I'm faced with this choice, like there's been a space of disillusionment, am I willing to continue on? We even go through this in our faith. I would say healthy faith comes into spaces of disillusionment. We're handed certain things, we believe certain things, we grow, we mature, we evolve, and then we change. And our understanding of God, our understanding of the world, our understanding of faith will change. And sometimes that can be difficult, and we go through a space of disillusionment, and we're faced with a choice. How willing am I to continue to pursue something like faith? Right? How willing am I to continue to pursue this idea that there is a divine presence, or will the disillusionment, the moment of pain, just kind of stop me in my tracks? Oftentimes, it's a wound that we experience, whether it's in our faith tradition, our religion, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship, we experience a wound in our life, or we create a wound, right? could be a spiritual wound, an emotional wound, whatever it might be. And in that moment, like, we have this pain, we walk through it, and it can stunt us, or it can, it can kind of like push us. And sometimes there's a big gap in between the two, right? So I think of like Sai's story, right? He has this wound in his life that he talks about, this addiction, this disease, right? And it feels very, very painful, and it's kind of stupid, right? It's just this sense of, and I don't mean stupid in like his choice, I mean it's just stupid pain, we feel that there's no redeeming value to it, like what's going on in that moment. But then as he shares his story, like he makes this really bizarre statement that, oh, there were these reasons inside of it. It's how he met his wife, like this redemptive reality. Because of size willingness to kind of put one foot in front of the other to make some tough choices, right? His wound moves from this realm of stupid, like why did this have to happen to me, to a space of sacred. And without that idea of being willing and open, to future possibilities, being willing and open to how the universe, how the divine presence, how God might be able to take our pain and our hurt and our mistakes and the mistakes that we impose on other people. The Bible calls that word sin, right? How do, how, if we're not willing to kind of bring all of that, our wounds just stay in the realm of stupid. No redeeming value. Our mistakes stay there. We just go, oh, I was so stupid in that moment. But it's our willingness to kind of continue to walk down, to continue to journey, that can move those wounds from stupid into this beautiful realm of sacred. Where Sai talks about, hey, I, I want to be a part of recovery in other people's lives. Now, now there's something sacred that comes out of something very painful and very wounded. And the campfire story we want to look at today that's found in Scripture, I think is this beautiful picture of what it means to have a willing heart. A willing heart. And we're going to look at this story that's found in a book of the Bible called Isaiah. Isaiah is in, if you're kind of new to the whole church thing, Isaiah is found in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament in Christian world. Um, and, uh, and it's this really big book 
that really is about three books in one. It's been put together over a huge period of time. And the first portion of Isaiah really kind of does date back to this figure in the history of Israel named Isaiah, who was a prophet, which means they kind of acted in an advisory capacity to uh, the king. They acted in an advisory capacity to the people, kind of calling people towards the heart of God as they understood God. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we get this very bizarre story that's fun and engaging, and it involves a vision, and it involves like creatures that we would know nothing of because it's not part of our cultural matrix. It involves temples and throne room imagery, and we don't have a king, nor do we have a temple. And so it's very bizarre to us, but there's some really beautiful things if we'll pause and just kind of recognize where this literature comes from, and and we'll see, I think today, why we call this timeless, and why we call something like this scripture. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 12, this is how it starts out. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is uh, is Isaiah writing, and you should know, like, Isaiah is writing this much later than when it actually happened. So I I would imagine, and I think that as Isaiah is processing his life, he writes down this experience in relationship to his whole life. And we'll, you'll see why I think that in just a moment. But he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. So there's the divine name, Lord, when you see that. He says, I saw the Lord. And he was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. So the matrix, the cultural matrix for Isaiah was to understand the divine in terms of kingship. Right? There was no greater power than the king, so the final authority, that's the, the, the great metaphor right, for Isaiah. I oftentimes wonder like, how the history of Christendom, the history of our understanding of God, would be like if the metaphor would have been you know, a caregiver <laughs> rather than a king. And we have lots of cultures who their metaphor for the divine is not king, right, but is something different. So he sees this picture of the temple uh, and, and he sees this like idea of God as, as Isaiah, I think, would envision God. And God's wearing a robe, and this robe kind of covers and fills the entire space of worship, right? Now, a little background on who this king is that died, because it's important, right? So Uzziah was an 8th century king um, who was the king of Jerusalem and Judah, which was the southern kingdom. If you don't know this, Israel and Judah are two separate nations. We interplay those words together, but after King David's son Solomon, the nation split. Massive civil war split into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Jerusalem, the capital, was in the south. So if you'll notice, well, you might notice now, if you go back and read kind of Deuteronomy, it always is staying in the place, it says, in the place that God will establish for you to worship, right? Well, that was written long after Jerusalem, and so there's a body politic that wants people to come to Jerusalem to worship. Why? Because it brings money, <laughs> right? You got to worship here, and everybody that worships in the north doesn't do it right. So there's lots of politics inside of our Christian scripture. I know that's very difficult for us to understand politics and faith and religion and all that stuff. All right, so Uzziah was an 8th century king, and he was in in Jerusalem. He was the king of Judah. He became king at age 16. Woo! Now, here's the deal. He was no different than any other 16-year-old. He was a knucklehead, right? So how many of you in the room are 16 years or about there? Raise your hand up nice and high. Any knuckleheads in the room? All right, a few of you. 
I see over here, a lot of the knuckleheads are out in the student center right now, okay? Now, but here's what's interesting. When you read like the book of 2 Chronicles, for example, you'll see when a king comes into power and is really young like this, uh, and, and that was oftentimes most of them were very young, it, it lists who the queen mother was right next to their name, especially when it says that they did right in the eyes of the Lord. If they didn't do right in the eyes of the Lord, rarely will you see the queen mother listed. Now, what does that tell you? Who was actually in charge? Mom, Right? Mom was in charge, right? Now, you probably, in your life, like, I've never heard anybody talk about the queen mother in the book of, but it's right there. We just don't talk about it, right? But it says, he came into power at age 16. His mother was some woman named Jecoliah. I have no idea. But, but you'll read it over, if you just read the book of Chronicles, more often than not, when a king is listed who did right in the eyes of Yahweh, the mother is listed and when there's no mom listed, it usually says they did evil in the eyes. It's the importance of parents in our lives, right? Especially when you're the king and you're 16 years old. You know what I'm saying? So it's, what's fascinating about, about this King Uzziah is he became very, very successful. Very successful. Massive building campaigns, massive restructuring. There had been a, 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 a massive internal destruction prior to him. Rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt a lot of buildings around the temple. And so massive campaigns, did really well. But, at the, but once he got successful, right, once he got old enough and got a little bit of success under his belt, it's like he stopped listening to mom. Anybody ever have that happen in your life, right? Think you can do it all without a parent figure, right? And in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, where it talks about King Uzziah, it says, but when King Uzziah became strong, he grew arrogant. And this led to his downfall. So that's what happened. In his arrogance, he decides one day that he's going to cross boundaries from what were the duties of the king and enter into and try and take over the duties of the priest as well. Right? It's a, it's a big picture. It's a big metaphor, in my opinion, of pride. This whole story about Uzziah is about this is what he wanted. He wanted to control everything. I don't think the point is whether he actually physically did this. I think this is to say this is what he was doing. And the story exemplifies it. So he goes into the temple one day and he tries to burn the incense, which only, only priests are allowed to do. And 80 priests tried to stop him. This is all in Second Chronicles. 80 priests tried to stop him and they, they, they really couldn't stop him. So he gets to the altar and he, he lights the incense and all of a sudden he forms leprosy. Bam! In that moment. Which was, which was a skin disease which puts you outside the community, which is, I think, a symbol, which is, I think, is a metaphor for the internal disease of pride that he was experiencing. And so the text, the story goes that he ends up living separately outside of the palace where all the other lepers would, and he would spend his days yelling out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And again, I think the metaphor here is that his leadership had become unclean, right? He had become filled with pride. And so at the end of the day, this king who... Uh, that Isaiah probably grew up pretty close to. Isaiah probably had a princely heritage, was probably pretty close to the court. Um, you don't, I mean, it's a king, right? How do you get close to the king? There's usually a heritage there. And so he had watched like this hero, right, who seemed to do so well, just all of a sudden fail, lose everything. And so Isaiah grows up near this. He watches this man who he thinks is this rescuer of Israel, like, turn and then die outside the city. And so when it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, 
I think for Isaiah, and there's been good, there's good reason for this, that, that rather than this be a time of celebration where there's the enthronement of a new king, which would follow upon the death of a king, right? That was beloved. This was probably a time of like real disappointment for Isaiah. Like this was the best that we had. <laughs> and look what happened, right? Look what happened. So we have this king who really isn't ruling. His son is co-regent at the time. And, and, and what, what do we have? Like he dies in disgrace. And so I think that Isaiah was in a moment of kind of religious disillusionment because you got to remember in this time period, there was no separation of church and state, right? There was simply the nation of Judah and there was an intermixing of all of it. And so I think that Isaiah at this moment is saying, is anything going to be different? Right? This, I mean, can we find somebody who, who could actually follow the ways of God any better than this? But look where it goes. And that left a wound of doubt in his life, wondering if it would ever change. And so he finds himself now having this vision. Uzziah has died. There's a new king that's going to be enthroned, which is actually going to be his son. And the question is, how's he going to turn out? He actually turns out pretty good, believe it or not. But he's in this moment. He has this vision, right? So that's the setting. He's in the, he sees God as king, which is interesting, given the disillusionment that he has about king. There's this, like, there's this spiritual awakening. No, the actual king is not whoever sits on some throne, but is this God, Yahweh. So there's some powerful imagery here for Isaiah. And it says him that around God, like the text says, that around God were flaming creatures. Come on now, it gets fun. Flaming creatures. Right? Think the phoenix, right? From Harry Potter. Any, any Potter heads? Raise your hand. I'm nice. And I, you know, some of you are smiling. You're not in the laugh. You're allowed to say you like Harry Potter in church. So. Which, by the way, just I know there's all kinds of strange rhetoric out there. Harry Potter is the gospel. If you, if, I'm telling you, if you pay attention and read it right, it's the gospel. It's why it's so powerful. I'm serious. You, know, I'm, well, you don't believe me. You think it's the devil. I'm telling you, it's the gospel message right there. Okay, so... Flaming creatures flying around, right? And they all had six wings. No problem, right? Six wings. Each of these creatures, they covered different features with their wings, right? So it says each creature covered its face with two wings, its body with two wings, and the other two were used for flying. What is going on here? This is crazy stuff. What does this have to do with my life right now? Well, think of it like this. You've got these images, these creatures that are flying around this king, right? And they're using their wings to cover things, which is kind of a sense of almost humility, right? Of, of reverence. But imagine these wings symbolizing some really important things, right? Two of those wings symbolize humility, the two that would cover the face, humility before God. Two of those wings would symbolize reverence, those that covered the body, reverence before God. And then the other two wings that were flying could symbolize readiness before God, right? You have these wings, you have these creatures that give, again, we're talking about an image of the ideal, of an ideal king that rules with peace, an ideal king that rules beyond the trappings of pride, right? And what does it mean to ideally be a part of this king's court, right? To have a sense of humility, of reverence, of readiness, right? And they were calling out to each other, these, these creatures, Right? They were calling out to, and by the way, he gets the image of the creatures because there were these creatures that, were, that had been like 
Um, they were sculptured. You all have sculptures around here. We, I should say we, I've lived here for three years now. I apologize. That was rude. We have sculptures around here, right? Sculpted on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the innermost part of the temple, were these two creatures called seraphim that had wings they touched, and where those wings touched was thought to be the divine presence on earth. Right there, right, right there. That was where it was. That was the belief. So that's where the image of these creatures begins and originates in Isaiah's mind. And so these images, these creatures are flying and they call out to each other, holy, 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 the Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. Now remember, right, the king has spent the last years of his life every day crying what? Unclean, unclean, unclean. The glory of that king is nowhere to be found. And Isaiah has a vision of a God whose glory fills, who's not, who's not outside, right, but who's set apart. So in, in the word holy means to kind of set apart, distinguish, doesn't mean perfect. I know we want that to mean that, but that's not what it means. Set apart. And so God is set apart, just like the king that was so disillusioned is set apart, but for completely different ways. One fills the world with glory, the other kind of sucks all the glory into itself, Right? And to say that the whole earth is filled with glory is to say you can look around and see the glory of God in nature, in creation, in the diversity around us, right? It says the sound of their voices made the foundation of the temple shake and the temple itself became filled with smoke. It's like a good Indiana Jones movie, right? And in that moment, I think it's important for us to recognize that what Isaiah is seeing is not an earthly king that has filled his heart with disillusionment, not an earthly king crying, unclean, 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 but, but he's seeing this image, this understanding of the God that he's been given, this God that sits beyond all things, yet is imminent in all things, this great mystery, and he's given this sense of hope. And Isaiah experiences God in a way that makes no sense to us. Like, I, I'm grateful I've never had that vision. <laughs> I don't experience God like that. That, that's not part of my cultural matrix. But the way Isaiah understands God, the way that his psyche works, the way that his religious imagination is governed is going to be through his cultural matrix, just like us. And, and in that moment, he experiences God and he finds hope. And here's what's interesting. This is his response. He says, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I'm doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful and I live among a people whose every word is sinful. Just, just like we brush over this if you've read this story, but like think about what this is saying, right? He says, every word that passes my lips is sinful. Does, your, does the definition of sin that you've been given, right, like match up with that phrase? Would you say that every word that you've ever said in your life is sinful? Like I wouldn't. I'm not that bad, right? Like I might have my issues, but come on, every word? But there's something about this that's bigger than just the moment, the, literal, the literal reading of this, right, what he's saying, right? Every, I live among a people whose every word is sinful, and yet, with my own eyes, I've seen the king. Always keep in mind, this is the year that the king is died. I see the king, the Lord Almighty. So what happens? Does he die instantly because we as sinful people can't be in God's presence? Does Jesus come and die on a cross in this vision so that everybody who believes in Jesus and says the right prayer gets to go to heaven? Spoiler alert, that's not what happens in the story. Something bizarre happens. One of the creatures flies down carrying a burning coal that he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. 
Right? Again, so the altar, the image makes perfect sense in Isaiah. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of atonement. It was the place where you went and you understood and you made things right between you and your deity. You had a meal together. It says, he touched my lips with a burning coal and said, this is what it said, this has touched your lips. Now your guilt is gone and your sins are forgiven. Nobody died. Right? Nobody died in this story. I'm, I'm not missing anything here. Nobody died. Nobody, no animal had to be sacrificed. Some, some piece of burnt coal left over from a sacrifice was picked up and touched his lips. I think this story is giving us something really powerful. I think the issue is not God. I think the issue is Isaiah. Look at me. I'm a terrible person. I think he's fallen into the trap of the foundational lie that we all encounter in our lives, that I'm unworthy, that I am unloved, that I'm unforgiven, there's something wrong with me. God could not possibly want to be a part of my life. There's this sense that we are unworthy, that we're unforgiven. And yet, right here, there's just, like, I think, like, in, in the spirit of God working in Isaiah's life, he's like, oh, great, this again. This whole, I'm sinful, I can't do it. We got to help him through this. Get some coal. I don't know. Get something. Bring it over here. Touch his lips with it and tell him he's fine. It's like we need to know that. We need something inside of us. We need some experience where, where some experience can overwhelm that foundational lie. We need an experience of grace. Grace. And that's what Isaiah had in this moment. He experiences grace. And see, here's what I think grace is, at least today. I might change it the next time I talk about it, but as I thought about it in the context of this story, right? Grace is the healing of the wound that we all experience from the foundational lie of divine unworthiness and unforgiveness. That's grace. Grace is the moment where we kind of get that wound can be healed. It's Jesus looking at somebody who never asks for forgiveness, never says anything, he just looks at them and says, your sins are forgiven. And the person is like, yeah, but I want to walk. Like, what is that all about, right? But it's this experience that says, grace, is that is a lie. It's the lie of the garden that you are not like God. It's the lie of the story that says God isn't present with you in the wilderness. It's the lie of the story that says God, God is out, not with you outside the garden. Like, no, like, it's, it's, it's ingrained in us to just believe this about ourselves. And that's why grace is important. That's why repentance is important. That's why experience of surrender is important. Not because somehow God has to change God's mind about us, that we're just, no, but we somehow have to get it through our minds that we are loved so perfectly by this divine presence, that we are held so beautifully. And I think that's the simple, it's just a piece of coal. It's just all it is. Piece of coal, touch the lips, you're okay now, all right? And I, I honestly, I think there's a lot of the, the culmination of Jesus is this reality of, of this incarnate love to right the ship <laughs> as we think about God. So Isaiah, after this moment, he says, I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? I love that the question is, who's going to be the messenger? Not the Messiah, not the one to fix everything, not the one to change everybody's mind, but who will deliver the message? And I love his response. He says, I'll go. I'll go, send me. I just picture this grand scene, scene and then like, here's little Isaiah. Like, he goes from, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm going to die. 
experiences grace, the wound is healed, and he's like, let's take it on, let's do it. Like, he doesn't say, like, what's the message? Can we talk about that first? <laughs> like, what exactly do you want me to say? No, none of that. But grace moves our lives, challenges us, shapes us to where we want to be go. We want to take that message of this beauty of love in the world. And what we see here is Isaiah is willing to live as a sent person. I'll go send me. I don't care what it is, just send me. He doesn't know what the message is. I love it. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to need some time to pray about this one. It's my favorite one right there. <laughs> I'm just going to need a day or two to pray about it. Nothing. He's like, this is an opportunity. I'll go, send me. He sees the need, he meets the need. He says, I can do that. I can talk. Let's go. Let's do this. I mean, that's like carpe diem at its finest. Seize the day, right? Seize the day. Now, the story takes a weird twist. <laughs> like right now, we're like, this is amazing. How cool is this? And then you get to what the message is. <laughs> so he says, so God tells him, go give this message to the people. You ready for this one? <laughs> it says, no matter how much you listen, you're not going to understand. No matter how much you look, you won't know what's happening. Then he said to me, make the minds of these people dull and their ears deaf and their eyes blind so they cannot see or hear or understand. And if they did, the problem is they might actually turn to me and be healed. It's like one of the most sarcastic moments in the history of the divine being recorded. <laughs> they might actually be healed. And, and Isaiah's like, okay, 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 okay. Question? <laughs> how long... Should I give this message? Like, maybe that's just the opening line. You know, like, that's the old, like, for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. Y'all ever heard that one before, right? Probably said it. Sorry. I apologize to the universe for that one. There can be good news without any bad news, by the way. This is, um, how long, how long, how long, how long is this going to last? And, and it just gets even better. God says, well, until the cities are ruined and empty, until the houses are uninhabited, until the land itself is a desolate wasteland. I will send the people far away and make the whole land desolate. Even if one person out of ten remains in the land, they too will be destroyed. They will be cut like the stump of an oak tree that has been cut down. Message doesn't feel too popular, right? I mean, it doesn't feel like sign me up, like, yes, why I'm so happy I went to that job interview, right? So this is... Remember this. This is being written down and recorded years after Isaiah's start of his ministry, probably more towards the end of his life, right? And at the end of his life, this is what I think, whatever particular message he gave, the result is what we have in the vision story. No matter what Isaiah would say to the people, no matter what he would say to the king, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen to the call. So this is what it was. This is what it was like for Isaiah, his whole ministry. I believe that's what is being said here. Like every message I gave, it was they had no eyes, they had no ears. They wouldn't listen. There was the chance to be healed, but they didn't. And you see, Isaiah's whole ministry, his whole work was marked by these ups and downs. In fact, in Isaiah's ministry, he experienced one of the greatest renewals in the nation under a king named Hezekiah. But guess what? He watched Hezekiah fall into the same trap that Uzziah did. His whole time of ministry, this little tiny nation of Judah was stuck in between two great superpowers, Egypt and Assyria. 
right in the middle of this massive war. And the, and the, the, the nation would go, well, we got to go to Egypt. No, we got to go to Assyria. And, and we can't trust God. We got to do this. And so there was all this conflict, and, and, and it would happen. And people would, there would be wars and civil wars between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Caught up in this global conflict, this small tribal nation was stuck between these huge global powers. And Isaiah's ministry would end about 720 B.C. And he would end as this time of being a prophet right there in Jerusalem. And in 720 B.C., here's some things that culminated at the end of his ministry. Two years earlier, he would watch Assyria invade the northern nation. He would watch them come and destroy Samaria and take the people into exile. His, aunt, his relatives. In 720, Israel would make a pact, or Judah, excuse me, would make a pact with Egypt to stand against Assyria, and they would lose. And Jerusalem would be conquered. It would face all types of, and, and Egypt would have to pay tribute. This is where it ended. <laughs> Big success, right? So glad I said yes, God. This is awesome. My whole life has led to this moment of desolation now. Nobody ever listens. The ups and downs, and he finishes in a down, in a low point. But I think he writes it down because what's so amazing is the success of Isaiah was not in anyone's response to the message, but within his faithfulness. You see, Isaiah's faithfulness was his success story. He was faithful. He was the messenger, right? That was the call. Who can be our messenger in the vision? That's all I am. That's all I'll be is the messenger. I'm not responsible. So here's what I don't want us to miss as a campfire story as we kind of head out into our everyday normal lives is that sent people, sent people are willing and faithful people. Sent people don't get caught up in the results. They're just willing to love, willing to, and again, sent people by Jesus through the matrix of Jesus are willing to love their enemy are willing to pray for those who persecute them, are willing to care for the poor, to include everyone. We're faithful and we're willing and the results and people's response and who comes to church and who doesn't come to church, it's not, we're not, we just gotta be faithful and willing. So in our everyday normal lives, three quick questions. Three questions that I think this story calls us to consider as people who would say, I wanna be a peacemaker, I wanna live as a sent person, First question, and this is just for you to consider this week. Am I a peacemaker with a spirit of humility, reverence, and readiness? Is there a sense of humility about me? That, yep, this is what I believe, but there's, I'm humble towards other people. I'm humble in this idea that I get to be a peacemaker, that I'm called to this. Is there a reverence toward the sacredness of the divine in our world all around us? And I don't mean a reverence to don't wear your hat in church. <laughs> Let that one sit in for a second. I mean the reverence to say that my Muslim neighbor is made in the image of God and loved by God, that my poor neighbor is, that my rich neighbor is, that my transgender neighbor is, that my single neighbor is, that my atheist neighbor is. Is there a reverence for the divine in all things? Right? And is there a readiness? Am I just ready? Lord, send me. Send me to love. Send me to serve. Send me to bring peace. Second question. Am I experienced? Am I in a moment of religious disillusionment? 
And am I seeing it as the beginning or an end? Right? So Isaiah's in this moment of, I think, disillusionment. Was this going to be the end? Uzziah had died, or is this going to be the beginning? And he looks back on that pivotal moment in his life, whatever it might have looked like historically, where he said yes, and it was a beginning. And so you might be in a space of religious disillusionment, of deconstruction, and I think that is, you should stay in that space. You should honor that. I would hope that somewhere inside of the pain, the frustration, that there could be a sense that this is the beginning of something new and beautiful, even as you work through trauma that may have come through religious structures and settings. Great article from about 50 years ago, kind of a seminal article on this story written by a guy named Julian Price Love, and in it he writes this, disillusionment in the providence of God is often the prelude to enlightenment. I love that. I almost just stole it and said it and made a fill-in. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, that's plagiarism. I shouldn't do that. It's so good, though. Disillusionment in the providence of God, right? In the idea of the real, of the world, of the divine presence is often a prelude to enlightenment. There has to be, something has to kind of die so that something can live, right? It's death and resurrection, even in our belief structures. And then the last question is, do I see myself as a sent person? Am I sent... What fields am I going into to bring hope? Jesus said it this way. Lift up your eyes. Look, the fields are ripe for the harvest, but there's not enough laborers. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field. And we've used that to say we should send people out there to get people to say the magic prayer so they can go to heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. We need people to go and bring hope and life and joy and the divine love and grace and forgiveness of enemy and care for the poor, all of these things. There's so many opportunities of woundedness in the world to go and be healers but we need laborers. So will I go into my everyday normal life, my workplace, the place that I play? Will I go to my faith community? Will I be a sent person there? A faith community like Crossroads where we come together, we experience the divine presence together, we participate together in peacemaking. It's side story of, that's why I want to be a part of a recovery group. That's why I want to start here because I want to be a sent person. And if we live as sent people, you know what sent people do? Sent people baptize every circumstance with hope that's found in meaning and purpose. See, I don't live my life believing that I'm just on this rock in the middle of a universe spinning around. I believe that, that I don't believe necessarily there's a reason for everything that I go through because I do think that there are just there's evil in the world. It's not like there's a purpose that, God, I had to go through this for this to happen. No, but I believe what the Spirit of God can do and what living as a sin person does is say, there's a reason why I'm in it. Like, I can bring meaning to it. I think that's what Ecclesiastes teaches us, that the world is a sense of meaninglessness, but we can bring meaning to it if we see ourselves as sin. There's a, there's, it's, a, it's a big difference to say there's a reason for everything and to say, I believe there's a reason for everything I'm in. I believe there's a reason I'm in it, that I can find it. And I think that's the redemptive reality that Sai sees in his story, that we see in our story. And oftentimes it's the hardest to see in the parts of our story that make us feel like we're disqualified. So there's some next steps there on your talk notes as the band sings this closing song. I would encourage you to just think about what could be next for you. Where are you being sent to? Open your heart up to that idea. 
to make this kind of response to what the divine is doing. Yes, here I am. Send me. But you don't have to be sent to some faraway land. You can be sent to your living room. (laughs) You see that space as a sent space. You can be sent to your office, to your neighborhood block party. You can be sent to the five-year-old room, the student center. You can be sent to a Tuesday night seminar on what does it mean to to deconstruct your faith in a healthy, safe environment. Like there's just seeing yourself as a sent person. Oh man, it's like you'll have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing around you. So fill out that connect card, your offering envelope, get your donations ready. If you're at a table, you can drop those in the basket. If you're on the sides, our room hosts will come and receive those. If you're in the bleachers, you can drop yours in the Hope is Here kiosk on your way out. So we're gonna sing this song. And then I'll have our blessing for the week as we just consider what is it that God's inviting us into. This is a great song. Great song. I hope you enjoy it. thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in this morning. If you're here and you'd like to connect sometime, I'd love to do that, to share a cup of coffee, to hear your story, to talk, to be together. My cell phone number's there in the program. It's on the website. Send me a text message. We'll get it set up. I would love to do that. That would just really make my week. So if you want to do that, especially if you're a guest, if you're newer, you want to kind of find out more about this crazy place called Crossroads, its beautiful history and what we think is its beautiful future. Love to do that and share that with you. So we end every one of our services on the weekend with a blessing. And if you feel so inclined, you can lift up your arms to receive the blessing. It's just kind of a a physical metaphor to spiritually opening up our hearts to what in this moment we see as a truth for our lives. So this week, may love find its way out of your heart and into your words and actions. And may you find yourself longing for an opportunity to say, yes, here am I, send me. And if today your heart is filled with anxiety and doubt because of the mistakes that you have made or the harm that you have caused to someone, may you know that you are forgiven by God. And may the truth of divine grace overwhelm the lies that you are unforgiven or unwelcomed in God's presence. And may our church crossroads be a place where grace flourishes and lives are transformed. Where you are sent by love into your normal, everyday lives every week with the hope that's found in the path of Jesus. Amen. Have an awesome week, everyone. Thank you.